Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. House prices have been rising rapidly over the last two years, growing faster during the pandemic than in the lead up to the 2007 financial crisis. This has led a lot of people to ask if we're in the middle of another housing bubble. This is an important question, as housing is often the most valuable asset owned by most people. It's also a complicated question, and the answer has many components. So let's look at the recent rise in home prices, along with the changes that have occurred during the pandemic, so that we can better compare the current real estate market to the market in the lead-up to the credit crunch. We'll look at regional and international differences to try and understand exactly what's going on. Okay, so what is going on in the real estate market right now? Well, U.S. house prices rose over 19% over the last year, after being up around 8% in 2020. This compares to average annual returns of around 14% per year between 2003 and 2005, the bubble period. Now, we had three years of double-digit growth in the lead-up to the credit crunch, so U.S. house prices are rising faster right now than during the bubble years, but they haven't been doing so for as long. Anyone who's been in the market for a new home over the last year or so is aware of how competitive things have gotten. Zillow reports that more than half of the houses sold in the U.S. last year transacted above the seller's initial asking price. The United States is not an outlier with these price rises either. In fact, the U.S. didn't even make the top 10 in 2020 when house prices rose by more than 5% in 23 countries around the world, despite the global pandemic. Now, just because prices have been rising doesn't mean that it's a bubble. To add some context, before the pandemic, 2020 was expected to be a big home buying year anyhow. This is because of the sheer number of millennials that were reaching home buying age. More than 72 million millennials reached their 40s around that time, putting them in the prime age to buy a home. Things changed rapidly when the pandemic hit as many millennials who wanted to buy homes but felt priced out found themselves no longer commuting to work. The nearly 2 million millennial renters who couldn't afford homes in the urban areas where they worked could now afford to buy a home further out because they no longer had to commute into an office. This was a big change. As a result, many renters became home buyers, and we saw home prices rise and rental costs fall. That sounds good for renters, but the lower income households who are more likely to rent were also more likely to work in hard hit industries like retail, hospitality, and food services. Rents fell, but for a good reason. Renters were either earning less or were worried about job losses. Another factor we must look at is construction costs. It takes a lot of moving parts to get a house built, and right now a lot of those parts just aren't moving. 
Price increases caused by the difficulty in hiring construction workers and supply chain disruptions pushed up the cost of building new homes by almost 19% over the last year, about the same amount that house prices had gone up. Builders began selling new homes later in the construction process too, so that they didn't fix a price only to lose money due to rising raw material costs as they completed the build. Even with people willing to pay overappraised values for homes and choke down the hefty construction costs, builders can't put up homes fast enough. Supply is lagging so far behind demand in the United States that some experts speculate it will take at least 10 years and upwards of 5.5 million homes being built to correct for the housing shortage. So is this happening everywhere? Well, for most places, recent home price growth has been even stronger than during the previous boom. 79% of metropolitan areas saw higher home price growth during the pandemic than during the lead-up to the credit crunch. One of the more interesting differences, though, is that many of the cities seeing the highest price increases during the pandemic did not see similar price rises during the lead-up to the credit crunch. So different parts of the country are seeing price rises this time around. Austin, Denver, Charlotte, Seattle and Atlanta have had higher growth rates during the pandemic. On the other hand, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Miami and New York saw lower growth rates over the last two years than during the boom of the early 2000s. Now, while that's interesting, we can break things down even further. Most metropolitan areas include both urban and suburban housing. If we look at a breakdown between urban and suburban prices, you can see that house prices in urban areas have grown at a slower rate than those in suburban areas during the pandemic. Looking at a chart of year-over-year house price growth since 2000, we can see that urban areas over that period typically had higher returns compared to suburban areas. Interestingly, starting around November 2018, so well before the pandemic, urban areas began to see lower rates of growth compared to suburban areas. It may just be that urban prices had risen so much that people were forced out to the suburbs, but that's when this trend began. Once the pandemic took hold in March 2020, while urban house prices rose, suburban areas grew even faster. While most parts of the United States saw price growth, there are a few exceptions. Manhattan, for example, saw a price decline of 4.3% year over year in June, the largest decline nationwide. Okay, so what about regional differences within the United States? Well, in places like New York and San Francisco, the suburbs outperformed, but the opposite happened in markets in the Midwest. For example, urban dwellings surged in the Kansas City and Cleveland metro areas, where home prices were relatively affordable to begin with. It would appear that people in larger, more expensive cities were not willing to pay a premium to live near amenities that were no longer available during the pandemic, but demand boomed in more affordable urban areas. There's an obvious link between where people live and where they work. When more jobs become available in a given area, people move there to work, and that puts pressure on the housing market, 
increasing prices. Surveys show that most people are willing to commute 30 minutes in each direction to their place of work and home. Buyers place huge importance on the proximity of their home to their workplace. It might surprise you, though, that before the pandemic, remote workers were actually more likely to live in urban areas, even if they didn't need to be downtown for work. Additionally, there have always been a certain number of reverse commuters, people who live in the city for lifestyle reasons, but work in the suburbs. Census Bureau data shows that reverse commuters tend to be more common in less expensive cities. Some of the best-performing urban real estate during the pandemic was in cities that had a high percentage of reverse commuters prior to the pandemic. The percentage of reverse commuters and remote workers in a city might be a good indicator of how attractive it is as a place to live, separate from how good the job market is. Cities that housed a lot of remote workers and reverse commuters pre-pandemic are places where people are willing to pay a premium to live without the benefit of being close to work. In a world where remote work becomes more common, these cities might remain in demand. Another trend that we can see in the data is something that we've been reading about in the press for quite a while where people are leaving places like New York and California and moving to other states, often states with lower tax rates. Utah, Idaho, Texas, North Dakota, and Nevada have all seen their populations grow by more than 15% over the last decade. Once again, this is a longer-term trend that just picked up pace during the pandemic. Okay, so what about the global situation? Well, we can see that global house prices have been steadily rising over the last 20 years. The pandemic was a global shock, and it changed the way people live around the world. Government stimulus efforts around the world were somewhat similar too. For these reasons, global house prices have made new record highs over the pandemic period, due to ultra-low interest rates, low new home construction, shifts in family spending, and fewer homes being put up for sale. Most countries have seen price rises over the period. IMF data shows only six countries where house prices fell in 2020. Indonesia, Peru, Serbia, the Philippines, India, and the UAE. While home price rises are a big win for existing homeowners, prospective home buyers are finding it much harder. House price to income ratios have increased around the world over the decades, and this has gotten worse during the pandemic. A chunk of this price rise relates to lower mortgage interest rates. When mortgage rates fall, the same cash flow will allow a borrower to spend more on housing. This then pushes up housing prices. The overall effect is that while a new home buyer is spending more on a home, that additional expense is offset by the lower cost of their mortgage. Mortgage interest rates have fallen steadily since 1981, helping to drive up house prices. Millennials may be upset that boomers got to buy houses when they were a lot cheaper, but boomers had to pay interest rates as high as 18.6% on their loans. Of course, when you have to put down, let's say, a 20% deposit when buying a home, 
The size of that deposit obviously grows with housing prices, making it much harder to come up with a deposit for a first home today. Rising house prices around the world have become a new fault line in politics, and it's one with unpredictable consequences. The leader of Germany's Verdi Union called rent the 21st century equivalent of the bread price, a historic trigger for social unrest. China has stepped up restrictions on the real estate sector this year, which I've covered fairly extensively on this channel, as part of Xi's Common Prosperity Drive. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised a two-year ban on foreign home buyers as a part of his election campaign last year. In Berlin, residents voted this autumn to have the city seize nearly a quarter of a million apartments owned by the region's largest real estate developers. Legal experts say that this would not be compatible with the German constitution, but it is part of a push to bring down the cost of housing in one of Europe's hottest real estate markets. In a scenario where the cost of housing outpaces inflation in the long run, you can expect it to be a political hot button. Equally, because the global middle class have so much of their wealth tied up in real estate, a real estate collapse would be a problem for politicians seeking re-election too. There's a bit of a thing where politicians want house prices to rise for one group and fall for another, and that probably won't work out. Okay, so let's talk quickly about inflation and real estate prices, because everyone's talking about inflation right now. When you look at global house prices since 1900, you see that house prices appear to have moved mostly in line with inflation. This may reflect the fact that individual earnings tend to move in line with inflation. It would appear that residential real estate is a good hedge against inflation in the long run. If we look at a chart of housing prices since 1900, you can see that housing has provided a long-term capital appreciation that's similar in magnitude to an investment in gold. The best performing house price indices are in Australia, which has returned just over 2% per year since 1900, and the United Kingdom, which returned 1.33% per year over the same period. The United States is the worst performing of the six markets that we have data on since 1900. It's worth also noting that over that period, a lot of the returns were generated in the post-World War II period when credit became much more available to the average person. When people were able to borrow, they borrowed to buy real estate and this drove prices up. Okay, so what about people's finances? Well, prices have been rising very fast over the last two years, and mortgage originations have been strong too. House price rises, however, have outpaced mortgage originations in recent months, according to Federal Reserve data. Right now, the owner's share of housing wealth is 67%, its highest value since 1989. Note that during the previous housing boom, this measure didn't rise in spite of sharply rising home prices. Additional borrowing was large enough to keep the owner's share of housing wealth roughly constant at about 61%. So people are, on average, less leveraged today. 
Credit score is another strong predictor of mortgage performance for borrowers conditional on their home equity position. More than two-thirds of U.S. mortgage debt in 2020 was held by borrowers with a credit score above 740, compared to just over half on the eve of the credit crunch. Perhaps more importantly, around 10% of current debt is owed by borrowers with a credit score below 660, compared with nearly 20% in early 2006. So while we're seeing house prices rise, we're not seeing anything like the type of borrowing that we saw in the lead up to the credit crunch. Now, one risk that is difficult to weigh in today's housing market is mortgage forbearances. A forbearance is a temporary postponement or reduction of mortgage payments. Under the CARES Act, borrowers were made entitled to an initial forbearance of up to 180 days, extendable for an additional 180 days. Forbearances made up around 2.7% of loans in June 2020. Because this is a new approach to avoiding default and foreclosure, very little is known about how these borrowers will react when the programs come to an end. Some will likely be able to resume making payments, while others may have to sell their homes. Given the strong real estate market, those forced to sell should at least get good prices. Nonetheless, the transition out of these programs is an additional risk factor to keep in mind when thinking about real estate. Okay, so where does all of this leave us? Although house prices have risen a lot around the world, the data doesn't show that this is a rerun of the boom from the early 2000s. This boom is taking place in different metro areas and in different locations within metros, more suburban than urban. Nonetheless, home price growth in excess of 15% per year can't be sustained forever. So a remaining question is how price growth will normalize and what the consequences of a decline in home prices could be. We've seen how interest rate declines have pushed up house prices and so can expect a rising interest rate environment to provide some headwind. Over a decade ago, falling house prices marked the beginning of the global financial crisis. We appear to be in quite a different situation today in terms of the amount of debt that people have taken on. A plausible scenario is that we see a rise in interest rates, a withdrawal of policy support as economies start to recover, and the end of supply chain disruptions. This could lead to some normalization in house prices, and it's possibly wise for real estate investors to reduce their expectations of high returns going forward. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.